What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. And now we continue our series on Moses. Last week we looked at the birth of Moses. The Pharaoh was doing everything he could to keep the Israelites oppressed, including killing babies. We looked some at what this might mean for us today, especially in light of the Roe versus Wade decision on abortion. Uh, How do we as individuals, as a church, and as Christians in this nation respond? There are certainly no easy answers, but we know caring for and supporting children through our nursery school, Sunday school, and other ministries makes a difference. We work to increase what's called wantedness so children get the love and care that they need. Today we move ahead in the story. Eric is going to read for us. Moses has grown up, uh, but don't forget that he is a Hebrew or Israelite that was adopted as a little baby into the royal family of the Pharaoh. When he was old enough, he had to leave his mother to live with the daughter of the Pharaoh as her child. He was the adopted grandson of the king. The story takes a dramatic turn here, so listen closely as we hear about murder, Midian, and marriage for Moses. Uh, This is Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. After Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, an Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son and he named him Gershom for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. John 16, 33. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage I have conquered the world. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. 
Open our hearts to your word today that we might love, forgive, and bless as you have done those things for us. In Christ we pray. Amen. It's not difficult to see that Moses was wrong in what he did. He murdered an Egyptian, and even though he did it to defend someone, it was clearly an overreaction. It's tough to blame him, though, when you think about the circumstances he came from, the the layers involved in what he could or could not do. It's not surprising. It's hard to be a person like Moses. We all know something of what he faced. Moses was a person of two different cultures, two different ways of moving and being in this world, and that's something that should be familiar to just about all of us. Here in this country, there isn't just one way of thinking about things or one way of doing things. There are always options. I was at the grocery store this last week to buy a cake for my wife's birthday. We usually get ice cream cake, but because we had just had a birthday for my youngest son and knew we would be having more uh, ice cream cake for my oldest son the next week for his birthday, in between we agreed to do something different. The boy said just ice cream would be an acceptable alternative to ice cream cake. Since neither of them like cake, I guess that's a thing that kids don't like anymore these days, but I wanted it to be special. So vanilla wouldn't cut it or even a special flavor like cookies and cream. We needed something for a birthday and probably with hints of the 4th of July in it. And I walked down the freezer aisle past one section of ice cream and then two sections and three and four and five sections of ice cream. Then there's popsicles and ice cream sandwiches. Those might be on the table too. I walked all the way to the end of the aisle and back and then I settled on ice cream cake. All the options and possibilities can be very overwhelming sometimes, can't they? So I went back to the tried and true, the thing I knew everyone agreed on. But I'm finding there is less and less in this world that everyone does agree on. More often you have two people in a room and you have three opinions. We don't agree together on the way things should be, and that makes some sense. Years ago, everyone was born and raised in the same town. You knew everyone in your neighborhood, and you couldn't get away with anything because your neighbor's best friend's grandma was watching you, right? If you did something wrong, she'd tell your mom and you were in for it. The whole town had people to keep us marching in the same direction. That's just how it used to be everywhere you went. I was at a wedding this past week, and one of the people at our table said he had grown up here in Wyckoff. When he was a teenager, he was sitting in a car with his buddies eating apples from the local orchard. They'd take a few bites and toss it into the parking lot cop car came by and the officer asked them if they were eating apples and they all looked at each other and then at the officer and said, nah, with all the apple cores just surrounding their vehicle. The officer moved them along and that was it. That's life in a small town where everyone knows everyone. But that's just not true anymore. Emily and I have been in this neighborhood where the church is for two years now and have seen a dozen homes sold in that time. There's constant turnover. That's true in lots of places. People travel and commute long distances. There's a freedom to relocate that just didn't exist years ago. And that's not even to mention the biggest challenge to our sense of culture, our families. We used to have nationalities that told us who to marry and and how people would behave 
But that's out the window. If I told you that I was Irish, about the only thing you could assume about me is that I would turn lobster red if I spent a day on the beach without sunscreen. It's much harder to locate who someone is and how they will behave because the world is changing so much. What's true before is no longer true today. That's how we can know how Moses felt. He was a Hebrew baby raised among the Egyptian royalty. He was from two different worlds, and it meant no one knew quite what to make of him. He had the best education and easy access to money and food, but he was still genetically a Hebrew. And I'm sure the Egyptians had their list of assumptions that made uh, what they thought about Hebrews. They had, they had lots of ideas of what that meant for them. Today, we'd call that maybe racism or implicit bias. We assume things about others uh, that really don't have anything to do with race at all. It's really about us trying to make it easier on ourselves to figure out who others are and how they will behave. With Moses, it seems like he was in a real crisis. The scriptures don't say Moses' motive, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if him killing an Egyptian had to do with the conflicting worldviews he had. He is a prince. He has the power of the royal palace behind him. And yet when he sees an injustice taking place, he takes matters into his own hands and defends a person from his own family heritage. We know it doesn't go well. Even his own people, the Israelites, reject him, saying, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? We can even go a little further, too. Remember how last week we heard about the order of the Pharaoh that all male Hebrew babies would be killed? Moses is miraculously saved by a princess of the Pharaoh. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you, though? The king orders a massacre, and his daughter does the exact opposite of her father's orders. Okay, maybe that doesn't sound so strange, but the daughter is completely disobeying her dad. How, how much love and affection do you think that father would show to his adopted grandson? We might think today, well, maybe he didn't love the idea at first, but eventually I'm sure the grandfather came to love his adopted grandson, right? No, not at all. Egyptians at this time thought of themselves as the greatest ethnic group ever. They thought they were superior to everyone else. So Moses would have been considered an outsider, a foreigner that was inferior to everyone else in the palace. His life might have been saved by the princess, and I'm sure he got some of the advantages that come with palace life, but he would have been an outcast there. He was never fully accepted as an Egyptian. Then when he does something wrong, does his grandfather king try and use his power to protect him? Is his impulse to save his adopted grandson? No, Moses knows once word of this gets out, he's done. Verse 15 says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. He is rejected by the Hebrews and pursued for murder by the Egyptians. So Moses does the only sensible thing. He runs. He heads east to Midian, which is somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula where there are neither Hebrews nor Egyptians. He is all on his own. I bet you felt like that before. 
on your own, running from a problem you can't fix? Here's what Moses does next. There he meets a bunch of shepherds who are letting their sheep drink some water. Now, two things we need to know right away. One is that Egyptians considered shepherds to be the lowest form of worker. In fact, it was so bad they called it an abomination and the most disgusting work a person could do for a living. So Moses is now surrounded by people he grew up being told were loathsome and, and more inferior than he was as a Hebrew. The second thing we need to know, I only just learned. I've read this passage a dozen times and didn't see it. The women that are watering their father's flocks, there's only one reason that they would be doing that. Their father, Ruel, who is also the priest, has no son. He has only daughters, and they are the ones tending the flocks. When everyone is gathered to water their flocks, the women are pushed out of the way by the men. These are female shepherds that are abused by the others. Well, Moses doesn't take kindly to this. Uh, Maybe he conjures up a little royal rage and demands that the women get their turn. It leads to a place for a meal with Ruel and then eventually a wife and finally a home. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In a town heading there, he finds ten lepers. When they, uh, they want to be healed, so Jesus says to go to the priest and you will be made clean. As they are on their way, they find they are made well, and only one of them turns around. It is a Samaritan, which would have been a group hated by the Israelites. Samaritans weren't Jewish, and they weren't from other countries. They were sort of a mix, and that led to the Jews despising them. Well, this one Samaritan is the only one that goes back to Jesus, bows down, and says, thank you. Jesus says, just just one of you. Didn't I heal ten? But this foreigner, this Samaritan who is hated by the others who say they love God, is the only one that comes back and gives praise to God? The foreigner who doesn't fit in? who is despised by others, who is an outcast because of disease and cultural rules, is the one commended by Jesus and praising the Lord? We're going to hear more next week about Moses' calling from God, but I think this part right here is an important step in the journey. We can't get to the place where we hear God's calling in our lives if we haven't figured out our identity first. The Samaritan with Jesus is rejected by all the surrounding nations, but finds his identity in praising Jesus. With Moses, he had these different groups he identified with, but neither accepted him. He wasn't a Hebrew and he wasn't an Egyptian. It was actually the Midianites that took him in. He lived with them for decades Maybe he unlearned some of the feelings of superiority the Egyptians had, but also the self-worth it takes to believe your nation should be free. I believe we can be like Moses and take steps toward finding this new identity for ourselves. Emily, my wife, and I have just spent some time with our parents in the last week or two, And we just had the chance to talk about some of our experiences from these trips. 
One of the things we both noticed was some of the comments or negative views our parents had. Now, we didn't dwell on this. We just noticed it. My dad said this thing, and I haven't seen him in so long I'd forgotten he thinks that. Uh, or my mom did this, and it's been years since she's done that to me. And we realized how being away from these things for so long has given us some perspective. It's given us a chance to evaluate how right or wrong some of these things are. But that's certainly not the most important part. We immediately started talking about our own family, about the things we say and do, and how they might be perceived by our own children. How do we make sure we are not perpetuating our own biases and our own weaknesses? I want my children to do better than me. I want them to love better than I love, to bless more people than I will. So we talked about some things we might be blind to, some trouble spots that could trip up our children, and how we might change some of those things. One of the reasons I can do this is because of the United Methodist Church. This church has taught me how to step back and look at different ways of seeing things to evaluate and to reflect. In the Methodist Church, we talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's this four-step process for looking at the Bible. You can use it for other things, potentially, but it's designed for good, thoughtful reflection on the Bible. You have the Scripture itself, and so you ask, what does the Bible say? Then you have to ask, how has this Scripture been interpreted in the past? Next, you bring to the process your own reasoning, and finally, your experience. How has what you've seen and heard informed what the Bible teaches? So it's scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Using these four ideas, it helps you understand the Bible better. When I was first starting out, I would read the Bible and take it at face value. I didn't even know what other people thought about it or how they interpreted it. Methodists taught me how to look at different ways of seeing the Bible, thinking it over, and doing your best with it. That principle is incredibly powerful and helpful in other areas, too. When we think about uh, our one way of looking at things, our one way of viewing the world, it's going to make us reject people like Moses. He's not really a Hebrew, not really an Egyptian, so let's run this guy out of town. No, that's not right. The place that is a refuge for him, a place for him to find his identity, is Midian. Sure, Moses has to take a step in accepting the Midianites, in holding back his own judgment that he was taught by his adopted family. But look at the priest Ruel and the Midianites. They welcome Moses in. They give him a place to eat and a place to sleep. The priest gives one of his daughters for him to marry. He says, you are now part of our family. You are loved here. That's the kind of church we are here at Grace United Methodist Church. We may not always get it right. We aren't perfect, and we don't always agree, but we are working toward a church that welcomes people in, that says, you are loved here. When we simply accept people as they are, with no questions, no judgments, and no reservations, we are saying you belong. 
We are saying this is space for you to find your identity and know who you are because you are finding your identity through the work that God is doing. It's not us. It's not the people around you. As important and as beautiful as those relationships are, it's about you and God. So we honor that process and celebrate with you as you find who it is that God has created you to be. I mentioned earlier that I was at a wedding this week. This couple had reached out to me about six months ago and asked if I could preside at the wedding. I said sure and asked them how they had heard about me. They said they had gone to a local priest But you know the Catholic Church, if the wedding is not happening inside the church, a Catholic priest is not going to preside. So apparently, the priest recommended me. Now that is a first for me. The priest approves of the Methodists. I like that. Uh, So we've been doing premarital counseling, reviewing the ceremony, and all all is set. The day of the wedding, uh, they had invited my wife to join me, which I very much appreciated. It was down in Shrewsbury, so it was a long trip. And by the end of the whole event, Emily said that it was the fanciest wedding that she had ever been a part of. They spared no expense. But the part that got me was not the setting or the delicious food or the surprise famous guest singer they had there. Uh, What endeared us was how they treated the two of us. Two strangers to these families uniting together. I'd done all my work with the bride and groom, so they were the only ones I knew at the wedding. When the ceremony was over, people said nice things to me over hors d'oeuvres, and then the crowd is all moving into the grand ballroom. We picked up our card for the table seating and head to our table and sit. No one is there yet, but eventually a couple sits next to me, and the woman introduces herself, and she says she's a good Baptist from South Carolina. The first thing she tells me is that denominations don't matter too much to her. We are all in this thing together, uh, so there is lots of love and lots of welcoming at the core of what she believes. The next to my wife sits a man who strikes up a very unusual conversation with my wife. Uh, They are chatting away and swapping stories. Then finally, the last couple sits, and I realize it's the mother and father of the bride. We are seated to the immediate right of the bride and groom. They have given us a seat of honor. When it was late enough that we needed to head home because of a long drive, we noticed the family was together in the hallway taking pictures. We used the bathroom near, uh, nearby before our drive, and when we came, in, came out, the family was finishing their photos, and the bride and groom came over to us and said, we would be honored to have your picture taken with us. So you'll find a photo of Emily and I at the tail end of all these family photos from the newlyweds. When we walked out of that building, we were in awe. They had treated us not just as honored guests, but as family, as one of them, even if just for one night. They were so generous with their time and attention, we felt like we belonged. That is what I want for every single person who walks through our church doors. That is what I want for every person here, to know what it feels like to belong. To know that whatever may happen out there, out in the world, doesn't change how we feel about you. You are still one of us. 
you are still the beloved of God. Your identity is not found in what you do for work or how much money you have or what you've done in the past. You are who you are because God says that's who you are. And we are going to love you with the same kind of care and attention that God does. We do it because we know Moses wasn't just confused about his culture. He was finding his identity in God so that he could change the world. We do it because that's how Jesus loved that Samaritan and all the lepers. We do it because God calls us to love without bias, without discrimination, and without borders. All are welcome to find their identity in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.